We return after a week away from Romans to that letter of Paul's to the church at Rome, picking up where we left off at the 12th verse of the 6th chapter, Romans chapter 6, verse 12. As you're turning, let me refresh your memory about where we've been in this letter. After laying out the absolute need of all men to be saved by the grace of God, first by demonstrating how totally unrighteous we are by nature, plunged in sin, and then by showing how God's righteousness becomes ours through faith and faith alone. Now Paul goes on to talk about the results of all of this in a Christian's life. Last time we heard about who we are in Christ as a result of all of this. One with him in his death to sin, now alive with him to God. That is who we are. And as we saw last time, it is more important to know, or at least primarily important to know, who you are in Christ before we know what to do in Christ or not do. Commandments, do's and don'ts are important. The Bible is full of commandments. But first we must know who we are in Christ, and he has made that point perfectly. Now Paul goes on, having established our identity in Christ as those who have been, in short, baptized into Christ, to tell us how we must live. In other words, here at long last come the commandments. But first to prayer. Our Father in heaven, teach us from your word, we pray, both who we are and then what we must do and not do. And in that perfect order, our Father, that we may never dare to imagine that what we do or don't do will change who we are. For this, our Father, you have accomplished in Christ Jesus, your Lord, and applied to us by your grace and your grace alone. Now teach us to walk and to live who we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you, are, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves 
of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It has been said that no one ever regarded the 1st of January with indifference. And it is true. This week we begin a new year with a fresh reminder that our lives are fleeting Time grows shorter with every tick of the clock, with every minute, with every day to serve the Lord in this life. Where then on such an occasion should a minister lead the flock in God's word? As I thought about that question, nowhere seemed any more fitting a place to turn than the very passage that is providentially before us this morning. In many ways, Paul has just now in the text we've just read, summarize the entire Christian life. With regard both to our identity and our activity in Christ and as Christians. And the one, as we've seen, really simply just flows from the other. Our activity, what we do, how we live, in other words, our ethics are simply flowing from or must flow from who we are, our identity in Christ. In the opening chapters of Romans, Paul has expounded for us the doctrine of justification by faith and who we are in light of it. We are sinners. We are guilty before the holy God of the Entire universe, and we are unable to discharge our debt to him except by suffering the punishment of his holy wrath for our sin. The law of God, as we've seen, presents no help to us at all in this matter. It only serves to expose how sinful we are. And trying to climb that ladder to heaven, as Francis Schaeffer once put it, would be like a drowned Man trying to climb to safety from a raging sea on a ladder of water. But God in love has intervened. He has sent his son, his only begotten son, to die for us in our place as our substitute, taking upon himself our sin and the just penalty of it, the wrath of God against you and against me, so that we might have forgiveness and righteousness In God's sight. And therefore we are right with God. Reconciled to him. 
by the work of Christ who has satisfied the demands of God's law on our behalf. That is who we are. Clearly, emphatically, Paul has made this point that our acceptance and our forgiveness with God, our entrance into heaven, are in no way dependent on what we do, but on what Christ has done for us. But Paul also anticipates the argument that he addressed at the beginning of the chapter, you remember, and now again in the text we've just read this morning. It's the objection that says, well, if the more we sin, the more God forgives. And the more we do wrong, the more we disobey, the more grace abounds. And what does it matter what I do? In fact, it's, it's, isn't that perfectly logical that I should sin all the more? That grace may abound. I'll just kick up my heels, live as I please, take it easy. And as long as I trust in Jesus, I'll go to heaven. Paul, who understood the wiles of a sinful heart well, knew that argument was coming and says effectively, not so fast. There's more to salvation than that. Jesus did not die and rise again from the dead for your forgiveness only. He died to change you. He died to transform you. So we sometimes sing in that familiar hymn, He died to make us good. He died not only to take away the guilt of your sin, to take away the punishment for your sin, He died to break the power of sin in your life. United to Christ as you are, Christian, you are united to Him in all that He did and all that He does. Today, for you as your Savior. And forgiveness is just a part of that. In fact, it can be said that forgiveness is the smaller part of salvation. Restoration to goodness, to purity, to faithfulness, to obedience, to the true worship of the one true living and triune God. These are the better part of your salvation. This is what God intends For the person he saves, that he should not only be forgiven, but that he should be changed, that he should be good. D. James Kennedy, that late and faithful pastor, spoke once, I remember, about a bumper sticker that he had seen in traffic. It said, quote, Christians are not better, they're just forgiven. Heresy, I think, is what he called it, and he was right. If Christians aren't better, then they're not forgiven. Christ died to make us holy, and as such, ready for true communion with God. He died not only that we might know forgiveness, but that we should live out that restored relationship with God in our lives every day, that too is salvation. Salvation is as much about transformation as it is about justification, about being made right with God, forgiven and escaping His wrath. 
Remember from a couple of weeks ago when we were in the first part of this chapter that we not only died with Christ, we rose with Him. There is resurrection life, you see, that follows death. That is what we're living now in union with Christ, our Savior, whom we serve, a living Savior, and in whom we now live to God. That, brothers and sisters, is your calling. It is to a renewed life, to a Christ-like life, to a life lived according to the example and the commandments of Christ. To refuse this and to turn back to a life of disobedience to Christ is to despise his very sacrifice on the cross. James Stalker, the Scottish preacher of an earlier era, put it this way, quote, St. Paul's whole teaching revolves between two poles of righteousness through the death of Christ for us and holiness through the life of Christ in us. Righteousness through the death of Christ for us, holiness through the, death, through the life of Christ in us. Thus far in this letter, Paul has been at the first pole, righteousness through the death of Christ for us. Now he takes us to the other pole, holiness through the life of Christ in us. And to make the point, Paul draws on an image that would have been perfectly clear and clearly understood by those Christians in Rome, the image of a slave. Sometimes, you know, we talk about modern employment, the sort of employment that uh, you have in terms of slavery. Some of you men think yourselves slaves to the boss. And we all know what we mean when we say that, when we even joke that way. Ours is not truly fully slavery. It may be thought of that way from the beginning of the shift to the end of it. For 8, 10, 12 hours a day, you do belong to your employer. And you do what that employer tells you to do for those hours. But here's the difference. When you walk out of the plant or out of the office, you are free. You are free to do what you want, whether that is to uh, take in a round of golf or walk down the street or trip to the movies. That's not what Paul meant when he used the picture here of a slave in Romans. A slave in Rome belonged 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year to his master. When he was sold by one master to another master, it was not like changing employers with negotiation of new hours and a transfer of benefits. A slave was torn from his home, sometimes from his family, often against his will with no regard to his life. A change of masters meant a total change in a slave's life. A former master no longer had authority over that slave or control. That slave was completely under the control and the authority of his new master, serving at his beck and call night and day. 
This is what the Romans saw in their mind's eye when they heard Paul's letter read to them. And they knew well who had been the recipients of God's grace, the slavery of which Paul wrote. And so do you here today. You in the hearing of my voice who have known the saving grace of God in your own lives. You have known first freedom from slavery. That is from slavery to sin. Now you've heard me say before that the day-to-day Christian life is basically a matter of becoming who you are. Well, this is who you are, Christian. You are a person freed from slavery to sin. That is who you are. You are free from the power, from the mastery, from the beck and call of sin. Sin is no longer your master. Christ has accomplished this at the same time when he freed you as well from the guilt of your sin. He freed you from its power. Augustine had some phrases with which he described the transformation that takes place in a life when Christ frees one from slavery to sin. Before the fall, he said, we were pasa pacara, or able to sin. Adam had a genuine choice to sin. He did not have to sin. He had the choice to sin because he was able to sin. But after the fall, Augustine said, we are all non pasa, non pacara, which translated means not able not to sin. In other words, after sin entered the world, we became slaves to sin. We had no choice but to sin. We were at sin's beck and call. Sin had dominion over us so that we were not able not to sin. But once freed from slavery to sin, as Augustine put it, we become pasa non pecare, able not to sin. This is what Paul means in verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you. That is who you are. You are freed from sin's mastery, from that master, that harsh and miserable master that is sin. But now, Christian, you must live out of who you are. In other words, you must live as a man, as a woman, as a boy, as a girl who has been freed from the mastery of sin. You must live like a freeman when it comes to this matter, master. Oh, not that you will not see this master regularly. Oh, you will. You'll see this master walking down the street. This master you'll see on your television screen. You'll hear him on the radio. This master is waiting for you at that magazine rack in the back of the convenience store. This master is waiting for you on your computer, and he is just a click of the mouse away on the Internet. 
And this master always has in his hands a pair of empty shackles ready to snap them on your wrists again. You see, this master would love to have you back. He misses you. He really does. And he wants your company again. He'd love to have you back in his shackles. Alas, sometimes you miss him too, don't you? Not that you have completely forgotten what it was like to have him as your master. It was absolutely miserable, you remember, when sin owned you and drove you and controlled you and mastered you. But you have lapses of memory from time to time. And you think sometimes that it might be nice to go back and work for him maybe part-time. He promises you pleasure. And he delivers at first but only for a moment and then misery in fact verse 21 death Christian live like who you are live who you are you have been freed from this master and the only way for him to have you again is for you voluntarily to put out your hands for him to shackle and extend your feet for him to put into his chains don't Do it. You needn't fold to temptation's forces. You remind sin when it comes knocking at the door of your heart and calls with that familiar voice that you no longer work for him. He is no longer your master. Which brings me to the second point. While you've been freed from one form of slavery, from slavery to sin, that does not mean that you've been freed from all slavery. No one in the world is autonomous. No one, no one belongs to himself in all the world and has no master. Every person alive is a slave to one of these masters or the other. Every person is a slave either to sin or in your case, and this is the second point, you Christians freed from slavery to sin are second freed to slavery. Freed to slavery to righteousness. This too is who you are. You are slaves of righteousness. But here's the irony. This slavery is true freedom. Only when a person is a slave to righteousness is he or she able to enjoy the freedom to become all that he or she is called to be. True freedom, it has been said, is the ability to fulfill one's destiny, to function in terms of one's ultimate goal. Well, that freedom, real freedom, to do what is right, to do what is holy, 
to do what is pleasing to God in some to function in terms of one's ultimate goal is your freedom in slavery to righteousness. Remember that conversation that Jesus had with some, some religious leaders in his day? He told them, who believed in him in a rudimentary way, he said that if they continued in him, they would know true freedom. Remember, if you abide in my word, Jesus says, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you might remember the response he got. They were not pleased. That was not what they wanted to hear. We have never been enslaved to anyone, they said. Which was true. Well, unless you count the Egyptians. Oh, yeah, and then there's the uh, Philistines. And the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the uh, Romans, whose money they carried in their very pockets. But other than that, they were and had been totally free. Jesus resisted the temptation to laugh in their faces. And instead, he answered them this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. This is what Christ has done for you. He has made you free. Indeed, he has made you free precisely by making you his servants. Slaves of righteousness. I know the world doesn't get this. They don't understand it. They think it ridiculous to even speak this way. But then again, they have never known the velvet yoke of Christ around their necks. They have never known the tender, the tenderest love of this master whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Yet he is a holy master. And as such, he demands holiness from his servants. He requires that we be holy as he is holy. And that is not an unreasonable demand that he lays upon us. Later on in the same letter, Paul will call it our reasonable service. And this is no vague calling upon your lives. It involves, Paul writes in verse 12, our mortal bodies. It involves the very members of your bodies, literally the members of your bodies, your body parts. Every part of your body, every part of your body has been bought at the cost of the blood of Christ and has been bought from slavery to sin and now placed under the service of a new master. Your eyes your hands, your feet, your lips, your tongue, 
every part you could mention, from head to toe. That great minister, theologian, and slave of righteousness, Jonathan Edwards, put himself happily in the shackles of Christ this way, quote, I claim no right to myself, no right to this understanding, this will, these affections that are mine in me. Neither do I have any right to this body or its members, no right to this tongue, to these hands, feet, ears, or eyes. I have given myself clear away and not retained anything of my own. End quote. And we could spend the rest of the time this morning working through what it means to be slaves to righteousness in all of those members. We could talk about what it means to be a slave of righteousness with your hands and with your feet and with your ears and with your eyes. But on the cusp of this new year, I want as your minister to direct your attention to just one member, to your tongue. Dear flock, I fear that a particular temptation is gaining ground among us. I will be plain. I do not believe that I have heard for many years in this church as much negativity from the tongues of many of the saints as I have heard this year. And I do not mean only concerning church-related matters, though there has been plenty of that. But I mean negative words in general. I've heard critical and negative comments about the government, about the community, about events, about people, about other churches. And I fear that it is slowly spreading as bitterness is wont to do in a congregation. I've witnessed an overuse of satire outstripped by sarcasm and complaints and a quickness to correct others that subtly directs attention to its own superiority. Now, I'm not saying that this is the only way that our tongues have been used this year, not by a long shot. But while excusing many of you, I in no way exempt myself from blame. But let me ask you this, brothers and sisters even if it has only been a tiny fraction of our speech, is this the way that the slaves of righteousness, the slaves of Christ, should ever speak? 
to people who know themselves to have been bought from slavery to sin and to all that is ugly, the cursing, the complaining, the whining that is on the tongues of those who remain slaves to sin, I say, do you even have a right to keep such things on your blood-redeemed tongue? I tell you, the tongues of the slaves of righteousness should be so completely filled and occupied with the praises of God, with thanksgiving and with worship, and then with compliments and encouragements for others, things that build others up, that there is simply no room, no room left for the words of your old master. And here is one way to put the shackles of righteousness on your own tongue this year. It starts when you shackle your heart. When you take captive your thoughts. Yes, of God, but also of others. Remember the words of C.S. Lewis who wrote that it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Remember that. As you enter into this new year, especially about your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you could see that person now, as you will see him or her sooner than you can imagine, you would be tempted to fall down and worship him or her. Then... And only then you open your mouth to speak. In this and in a thousand other ways, in this new year, Christians, live who you are. Slaves to righteousness. Amen.